Well, you're not the first person to think of that question. In lower sixth, you might think you are. In upper sixth, you might think your parents have never addressed this kind of question. Why are we here? This question has been asked by various people, various luminaries, various cultural shapers. George Steiner, the literary critic, says this, more than homo sapiens, we are homo querens, the animal that asks and asks and asks. Viktor Frankl, who himself went through Auschwitz, the psychiatrist, striving to find meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. Albert Einstein, our situation on this earth seems strange. Every one of us appears to be here involuntarily and uninvited for a short stay without knowing the whys and the wherefores. Some of the greats in our culture, some of the not-so-greats have asked this question, why are we here? If you go to wikipedia.com, the reasons are given, and there are several reasons that are given. The first is this, why we are here is to realize our potential. If you have within you the potential to be a world leader, well, you're here in order to realize that potential, in order to become a world leader. Now, Donald Trump did actually 30 years ago say that he would be a world leader, become president of the United States of America, so he has achieved his potential. Everyone's agreeing. That's remarkable. Why we're here is to realize our potential. Why we're here is to achieve biological perfection, possibly in some cases to eradicate illness, in others to eradicate unfitness. Why we're here is to achieve biological perfection. For the more moral amongst us, why we are here is to do good, to do the right thing, to help numerous old ladies across the road. Why we are here is, for the more romantic and gents, Valentine's Day is coming up, why we're here is to love. I see Catherine and Jack staring lovingly at each other at the back. They're just recently married. It's good to see the flame is still there. Why we're here is to love or to fail, to enjoy the act of living. Why we're here is to have power, to be better. Another option, why we're here is we shouldn't seek to know and understand the meaning of life. So this, they would say, is a pretty futile exercise this evening. Having a sermon based on that very question, why we are here, well, it wouldn't make any sense because we shouldn't ask that question. This is probably the question of the materialist, that there is nothing beyond us. We just exist. We are because we are because we are because we are. Why we're here is, well, life is bad. There's nothing really beyond these days. There's no sunshine. I know we're in the depths of winter, so asking ourselves these sorts of questions when the nights are like this, when it's dark from 4 p.m., you really don't feel upbeat about it. But just imagine that feeling the whole way through life. That's what Wikipedia would have us feel, that life is bad. Life has no meaning. It's meaningless. Impossible to discern anything useful, anything profitable, anything that will give us something beyond ourselves. There is no meaning. 
You are because you are because you are. Why we are here is to die. Life ends in death. You know that, and I know that. Sometimes we try to forget it, don't we? Sometimes we try to convince ourselves, well, actually, life will go on and on and on. And what we do to our bodies, and what we do to our minds, and what we do in various, well, conditions, and, is to extend our life as much as we can, because death is that thing we're trying to avoid. Edmund Vance Cook said this, this life's a hollow bubble, don't you know? It's a painted piece of trouble, don't you know? We come to earth to cry, we grow older, and we sigh, older still, and then we die, don't you know? It's a stunning fact, isn't it? Death. That psalm that we had read earlier on deals with death. If you want to find it, please do. You'll find it in the Bibles that are in front of you. They're on page 599, Psalm 90. These are words written by a king, King David. This book of Psalms written by King David. What we have here in Psalm number 90 specifically is a prayer of Moses, who's described as a man of God. These words from David the king culminate in verse number 12. You'll see there on page 599. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's a reasonably stunning verse, isn't it? It's quite a sensible verse, actually. If life ends in death, well, count your days. Make sure that you live life in a way that reflects the number of days that you have. There's a lot of wisdom in this thinking, isn't it? When the Bible uses the term wisdom, or when Christians use the term wisdom about the Bible, what they really mean is this, right thinking that brings right living. There are a couple of different categories of Bible writing. The Bible has writing that's to do with how we're to live, things that we have to do. Then the Bible has, on the other hand, things that we ought not to do. Then the Bible is this category, the category of wisdom. It's about right thinking. How do you think? How do you think about life? How do you think about yourself? What ought you to think? Because if you think correctly, if you think wisely, then you live correctly, and living wisely is desired. Page 599. This is quite an incredible psalm, isn't it? David has included this in his book, but it's all about death. You see this from the first few verses, Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is stated here, isn't it, really clear that there's something more than us. In fact, there is someone more, someone more than us, and that person is God. From everlasting to everlasting, you're God. And over us is God. Verse number three, you turn men back to dust, saying, return, O to dust, O sons of men. 
For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Why does the psalm have so much about death in it? Well, verse number 12 tells us that if our years, as it's outlined in verse 10, if our years are roughly 70 or 80, teach us, verse 12, to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Why are we here? Well, it's this, isn't it? To measure our life in its own span, number one, and to measure our life in the light of eternity, number two. You see, for those Viktor Frankls of this world, for those Albert Einsteins of this world, for those George Steiners of this world, the question remains unanswered. Viktor Frankl, when he said, striving to find meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man for himself, Meaning for Viktor Frankl was just be kind to others. There's a problem with that, isn't there? Because if there is no God, and Viktor Frankl was slightly ambivalent as to the question, if there is no God, then you're just dust, spirated dust. And in fact, if you're going to be nice to others, well, what you're doing is you're perpetuating other spirated dust. It doesn't make any sense, does it? There's no real meaning. You're kind of interpreting your life in the fact of dust. Your dust and their dust. If there is no God, that is. For those who've sought to answer this question, the absence of God has rendered their pursuit and their quest impossible. David, the king, said those words in Psalm 19. His son, we thought a bit about him last week, his son Solomon was described as a teacher in this book of the Bible. A few on, if you turn to page 670, you'll see where we are. It'll be on the screen as well. Solomon declared in the very beginning of this well, it's his reflections on life, isn't it? The name Ecclesiastes, he says this, verse 2 of chapter 1. He gets right into it. Here's his conclusion. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Doesn't make any sense. There's nothing lasting about it. There's nothing that lasts beyond you. And how he describes it is in terms of, well, a mist or breath. You know those bubbles that you blow, kids blow, you kind of dip into a little tube thing and you pull it out and go like that. And the kids, certainly I did whenever I was younger, you kind of think these things will last forever, don't you? These bubbles that you create and you can make really, really big ones. 
You can have some small ones. If they get into your eye, they sting a bit. But if you want to understand the substance of what life is, well, Solomon, this son of King David, says life is just like one of those things, not permanent, not lasting, passing, in fact. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Why are we here? Well, if we just take that one phrase from Ecclesiastes, but of course it doesn't stop there. But if we just take that for a moment, if we just take that one phrase, the Bible's conclusion, and one bit of it is, everything is pointless. Now, for some that drives them into drugs, for some that drives them into alcohol, for some that drives them into this hedonistic lifestyle which knows no bounds. For some it means the self-inflicted end of life. When you come to realize that meaningless, 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 just mist, just breath, just a bubble, everything is meaningless. Whenever you realize that, and you're just here for, as his dad said, 70 or 80 years, well, goodness. Utterly meaningless, verse 2. Everything is meaningless. Verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? He talks a bit about death. Must have been an exciting Christmas parties in their home. David, Solomon, how's life? Meaningless. What are you writing about at the minute? Death. What about you, Dad? What are you including in your great books? Death. Wow. (laughs) Listen to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, page 670. You'll see it in front of you there. By the way, I I don't know what what you think this evening as you've come to All Saints. I I don't know where you've come from. I, I don't know what kind of is going on in your mind at this minute. You've got a Bible in front of you and someone's talking about the meaning of life and he's just said it's all meaningless. Listen to this. Verse 18, I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so does the other. All of the same breath, man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. That refrain. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Do you know who first heard those words? Those words were first spoken in a garden, which became a graveyard. To God's first man, Adam. Dust you are, Adam. And to dust you will return, Adam. Because, Adam, you said no to me. You've rejected my rule over your life. You said, I know better, Adam, but you don't know better. Dust you are, Adam. And to dust you will return, Adam. And a few thousand years later, Solomon, the king, the son of that other king, David, well, they're in the same boat. Talk about the graveyard slot. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 has this daunting conclusion. 
under the banner, under the headline, everything is meaningless. Death then comes. When I die, I rot. Live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse, said James Dean. Death is that ultimate reality that every single person faces. But what are we to do with it? What are we to do with death? Flick over chapter 6, it'll not be on screen. Well, chapter 5. Verse number 13, which is in the left-hand column, page 672. Verse number 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he is a son, there's nothing left for him. He, honestly, the book of, just take five minutes sometime, get a Bible or download it onto your phone and just read Ecclesiastes. I'm not necessarily to cheer you up because you can tell it's not really that kind of cheering material, but it's wise material. It will shape your thinking so that your life will not be futile. Oh, the dread of a wasted life. Listen to this, verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. So I work as a minister, and I conduct the occasional funeral. Whenever the coffin is coming into the church, there are some words in the old service that we use, and they're drawn from this. They're also drawn from another man who knew much of loss. Job, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You may have heard those words if you've been to a church funeral. The, the sentiments are echoed in another one of the phrases that are used. We take nothing into this world and we carry nothing out of it. See verse 15, whenever you think of it, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he takes nothing, what? From his labor. How many years is the working life? I have to retire when I'm 68, and I'm only 21 at the minute, so it's quite a, quite a long working life. I don't know how many years you imagine you'll be working for. It's a good idea to count those years. In fact, to count those days, isn't it? But all of those hours, all of the sweat of your brow, all of the sleepless nights, he takes nothing from his labor, from his career, previous church I worked in, there was someone who really thought something of themselves. They had a knighthood. They were in the legal profession. They lived along the shore road, and if you know the shore road out towards Carrickfergus, for years and years and years, it took a long time for them to widen the road because this particular gentleman kept saying no to the council. You can't do it. He was that powerful. He thought something of himself, and I was involved in his funeral. He died. Of course, he died at the funeral, so of course, he died. Just, just to make that clear. He died, and when the coffin was, I hadn't seen the coffin, when the coffin was brought into the church, I, I had a look at the nameplate on the coffin. You know, coffins, you may not be familiar with. On, on coffins, on the lid of the coffin, there's always a nameplate, your name. 
and the date that you died, not even the date that you're born, interestingly. And with him, he was someone who loved his head at notepaper. And you always got a note if you visited it, if you said hello, if you called at the hospital, if you had a Christmas card it had been from, I'll not give you his name, but he had a knighthood. And so you got the sir bit before his name, his pre-nominals, and you also got his post-nominals. He had as many letters after his name than he had in his name. Some of you might be like that. Some of you might be heading towards that. But verse 15, he takes nothing from his labor. I, I was interested to note his nameplate on his coffin. I expected to see, sir, dot, 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 nothing. Just his name, the date that he died. Stunning reality, isn't it? Death makes us ask that question, why am I here? He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. Verse 16, as a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind. Same word as this meaningless type word related to, just bubbles, just mist. All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is a lot. What's going on here with the writer of Ecclesiastes? What does he say? What has he discerned? Why, why the change? It's because God has entered the picture. God is now within his worldview. God is present. There is a God who has made us, who has given us life and breath and everything else, but has given us death. Verse 19, moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. Life comes from God, he writes. It's the only way he can make sense of it. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Chapter 6, verse 1, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily in men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. In other words, what happens? The man mentioned in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, dies. Who enjoys them? Who enjoys the fruit of his labor? A stranger a stranger enjoys them instead. You work, and you work, and you work, and you work. You build a reputation. You build wealth. Verse 3, a man, well, just, do you see that? This is meaningless, the grievous evil. Verse 3, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness. And the darkness, its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it is more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. 
do not all go to the same place? You hear what he's saying? Stunning, isn't it? Is there any hope? Is there any meaning? Not meaninglessness. Is that possible? Is it achievable? Well, you'd think to hear me that there isn't. You'd think to hear the Bible that there isn't. See, life without God will have to be, is obviously meaningless. The way he writes, the writer to the Ecclesiastes, or not the writer of the Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon the king, this teacher, this gatherer of information and wisdom, he writes in two ways. He pushes himself and he pushes the readers to the very logical terminus, the logical conclusion of life when there is no God. Life under the sun, S-U-N. He pushes them to think and to think and to think, to reflect that life is short, that life has a conclusion. As it has a beginning, it has an end. It is short. He pushes them and pushes them and pushes them to look at life, to observe life, as he himself has done. And his ability for self-deceit, he recognizes. But then he looks beyond himself. He looks beyond the sun, physical sun, He looks beyond that to another one, the same place that his father had spotted, to the one who's over life, all of life, to the true and the living God. There was another king who came, another king who's spoken about in the Bible, another king, and his name's Jesus. You may have heard of him. Christians talk a lot about him. His name is in the Bible. But he is the king from outside, the king from beyond us, the king who, we are told, was the one responsible for us. There were a number of his friends, and it was quite tense whenever Jesus was on earth, was walking on earth. It was quite tense and difficult to follow Jesus There were people who wanted Jesus and would have gone Jesus' direction. But whenever they realized exactly what he was about, they would walk in the other direction and attempt to dissuade others. You see this from this time. This is from John's Gospel. We're into the New Testament. If you want to follow it, you can, but you don't have to. The words are on the screen. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. They realized that his kingship and his kingly rule would mean too much for their lives. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. That's the 12 disciples. You've heard of them. Simon Peter, who's a bit of a spokesman, a bit of the mouthpiece for the disciples, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? He kind of realized this. He'd gotten it with Jesus. Actually, do you know there's something more? You have the words of eternal life. Just, I'll read that again because they are quite striking for one man to say to another man, for one piece of spirated dust 
to say to another paste of spirated dust, you have the words of eternal life, that there's something eternal about you. But how could there be anything eternal about you? Because, well, you're just dust, aren't you, Jesus? Well, no, Peter recognized in Jesus that actually what Jesus had to say was from outside, was from beyond. All of the existential questions, perhaps, that Peter had, all of the queries and questions, all of the answers that he was seeking, well, were possible in this man, Jesus. Because in him, Jesus, there were the words of eternal life. In other words, here is a man whose opinion was entirely different from any other man, any other philosopher, any other thinker, any other shaper of society. This man's words were different because of the words of eternal life. We have come to believe, Peter says, verse 69, we have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. In John's gospel, everything's got a, a kind of, it's, it's pretty loaded. Every time he uses a word like light, like life, like holy one of God, these words mean much more than just what you see on the page straight, kind of, that just feels obvious. I mean, there's much more. Whenever these words of eternal life phrases used, what does it mean? Is it just kind of an opinion that will outlast other opinions? A perspective that will outgrow and, and, and have much more weight to it than all of the other accepted opinions? No. When Peter used those words of Jesus, he said, listen, mate, see, J Jesus, I know what you have to say. Gives us meaning because it's from the outside. Gives us meaning because it's from the outside. Not only does it give us meaning, it gives us life in the way that John means it. John, the writer of this. There are two words in Greek for life. One is bios, to do with biological life, plant life. There is zoe, which is the life that's described here. You may have a sister named Zoe. Well, every time you use that name, you're using a word that's used here in the original verse 68. It means spiritual life. Life that goes on forever, beyond the grave. You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. You've got something to say to us that is lasting. That's not like everything else. And in fact, you're someone who is lasting, Peter says. Well, what does the king from outside want us to know? He tells us. You may be wondering, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? If it's just a short span, nothing beyond it? Well, the king from outside says this. This is eternal life. Bound up in that, here is meaning. Here is purpose. Here's the reason that you're here. Here's the thing that you've been made for. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Where do we gain meaning from? Where do we gain our purpose from? Where do we gain wisdom from? Well, the answers are here. We count the days, and the counting of the days incorporates a final day. That's wisdom. But that's also just life under the sun. Life under the sun, which is just to do with the here and the now, not to do with the there and the then. When Jesus says this, he means that you, anyone who knows Jesus, knows God, knows your maker, knows your judge, knows the one who gives life meaning and purpose. We have been made to know God. We have been made to be in this eternal relationship with the true and the living God, a relationship that's described as life, eternal life, a relationship that will not be broken even by death, that thing which we will all face. So the fact is we've rejected God. The fact is we've said, God, yeah, yeah we, we don't really want to know you. It's nice that you've given us things, and Ecclesiastes talks about all of those great things that we can enjoy and but the enjoyment is temporary, and it ends. What Jesus has to give is this eternal life which nothing can take away. The question is this evening, do you have it? The question is this evening, does your life have meaning and purpose in the light of the great news of Jesus Christ, in the light of the one he came from, you? Do you have it? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That doesn't mean just knowing about. It means knowing so that, well, you relate to him forever and ever. It means saying, yeah, I've messed up. I've said, no, I, I don't want you to be in charge, but you are actually in charge. Please forgive me. Please, please forgive me. And help me to live with you as my king because you've died for me on a cross, for my rejecting you. True meaning comes from this. The one who has made us tells us, the one who loves us and loves you with an incredible love that nothing can break or stop. He gives us the answer. This is eternal life. The one who has the words of eternal life, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Is that you this evening? Are you still searching? Are you still searching in the dark? Are you still going about it in the way that Viktor Frankl and George Steiner and Einstein still in, in, in their particular direction without the answers? Well, here we have a man with the answer. You can this evening acknowledge your need, acknowledge your ignorance, 
Acknowledge who he is. Jesus Christ, the one true and living God. Have you done that? Because you can, even this evening. Let's pray.